0: Sales of electric vehicles are shooting up, but the public chargers that will be required for them are not. Yet, we ask about a tricky chicken and egg problem, how to build out the infrastructure buyers will want before those buyers have bought. And humans have always longed to soar like birds, but history shows it's only men who actually try to do it. There have been many successful attempts and many tragic failures, and then there are those content merely to sing like birds. First up, though. In the streets of Chile's capital, Santiago, yesterday, hundreds of people celebrated the death of 99-year-old Lucia Iriart, the widow of former dictator Augusto Pinochet. She was widely hated, believed to have had influence over Pinochet, as he oversaw a brutal and deadly regime that began with a military coup in 1973. Her death comes just a few days before a runoff presidential election, in which one of the candidates, the hard right Jose Cast, is a defender of the Pinochet legacy. His opponent, Gabriel Boric, couldn't be further away on the political spectrum. It's an election that, 30 years into the democracy that bloomed after Pinochet, reveals just how divided the country remains.
1: You have two completely different visions for Chile on offer in the election of December 19th.
0: Ana Lánquez is The Economist's Argentina and Chile correspondent.
1: It's so wide open. Everyone you speak to says this is going to be an election that will be determined vote by vote. It's the first time since democratization in 1990 that you have such radically opposing visions on offer.
0: And we spoke to you a bit about those visions in November after the, the first round of the election. Walk us through it. What what's What is on offer?
1: So on the one hand, you have Gabriel Boric, who is a 35-year-old former student protest leader. He wants to change Chile's model from a heavily privatized neoliberal system towards one with a stronger role of the state in providing public services and creating a more just and equal society. On the other hand, you have Jose Antonio Cast, who's from the far right. He's an ultra conservative Catholic who defends the legacy of Pinochet and opposes abortion and same sex marriage, which perhaps because of fear of a caste victory was legalized in Chile last week on December 9th. Now, Mr. Cast once proposed to merge, I mean, his program literally says terminate, the women's ministry and close the National Institute for Human Rights. He also proposes to build a ditch in the country's northern border to prevent illegal immigrants from crossing. And at one point, he proposed taking Chile out of the UN Human Rights Council, of which it's not even actually a part at the moment. So it's kind of dog whistle politics against globalization and globalism.
0: So as you say, two very different agendas, and and that's pretty much the platforms they're taking forward to the second round?
1: No, this is what's interesting. Both got less than a third of votes in the first round, which is highly unusual. They're both very unpopular candidates. And that has forced them to moderate, to move towards the center to appeal to more voters. So Mr. Boric has now changed his program three times since July. And the and he has also written kind of a mea culpa, an apology to the former centrist parties, because they've now come out mostly supporting him. So he wrote, for example, to the Christian Democrats asking forgiveness for his party's, quote, generational arrogance. He said there is no virtue per se in youth and novelty. And they came out um, endorsing him. Mr. Boric then also invited center-left economists who are very respected to evaluate his economic program. And he's made some slight modifications. He, for example, now says that he will raise taxes by five percentage points of GDP in four years, a new initial step in his plan to raise them by 8% in six to eight years. He's also said that he'll be open, more open to dialogue about how to overhaul the pension system. And he promises to stick to fiscal consolidation and to stabilize the public debt. Critics dismiss these changes as cosmetic because the rest of the platform is still pretty radical and extensive. There are a lot of reforms that Boric wants to implement, even if he has promised to implement them gradually. Economists fear that they could harm growth.
0: And and what about Mr. Cast? How has his approach changed since the, the first round?
1: So Mr. Cast has also tried to moderate some of his proposals. For example, in the original plan, it said that he would cut corporate taxes from 27% to 17%. And that way, they were hoping to get growth of 5 to 7% per year in the economy, which is completely wishful thinking. Um, now they said that they're going to cut corporate taxes as the economy grows. So there's not a fixed target. They also... He says instead of closing down the women's ministry, they're going to um, strengthen it. Mr. Cass has also invited respected economists to join his team. They've also made some changes to the pension system that they're going to increase the rate of contributions and also deposit um, a million pesos for each baby born in Chile uh, from a lower income background that could then you know, build up over their lifetime in, 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 a, in a pensions account. However, Cast's shift to the center has been hampered by extremely inept allies. So, for example, in a video from 2017 that recently went viral, a newly elected congressman for Mr. Cast's Republican Party questions whether women should have gotten the right to vote. Because, he says, they elect politicians that let in migrants who could rape them. That deputy has since left the party. Um, it also came out recently that Mr. Cast's late father Who was German and emigrated to Chile in 1950 was a member of the Nazi Party. He joined in 1942 when he was age 18. Cass has also used phrases like a gay dictatorship and a health dictatorship to describe advances for same-sex couples and to describe the COVID lockdowns over the last uh, year and a half.
0: And what about the campaigning itself? How's that been going?
1: In the first round, Boric did quite well in the big cities in the center. So in Santiago and Valparaíso, in the center of Chile, and CAST did very well in the southern part of Chile, in the more rural areas, and also in the north. The last um, presidential televised debate was on December 13th. At some points, CAST seemed worse prepared than Boric did. For example, at one point, CAST suggested that both candidates should take a drug test, kind of insinuating that Boric might take drugs. And Boric whipped out a negative drug test from November
2: second. Whereas
1: Boric seemed a bit more assured, and he went into more detail about his program, and he also repeated the word dialogue and seeking accords repeatedly.
0: So there has been actually quite a lot of moves uh, ideologically and, and tactically since that uh, first round. But at this point, it, as you say, it could really go either way.
1: It really could. The election remains wide open. So Boric narrowly lo- lost to Cast in the first round of voting last month. But now, according to opinion polls um, that were published a few weeks ago, he's narrowly leading the polls. But a quarter of voters in those opinion polls remained undecided. Um, second, whoever wins will struggle to pass sweeping reforms. As a result of a general election last month, Chile's Congress is now divided basically 50 50. And the country is in the process of rewriting its constitution, which could limit the powers of the executive. This election is happening in the shadow of a huge uprising that took place in October 2019. And whoever comes to power next March may have difficulties controlling the streets, which is partly why CAST seems to have won in the first round. There is a renewed demand for order and security, and people are tired of continuing protests. Both candidates may struggle to contain that.
0: Anna, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Jason, thank you.
0: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com/intelligenceoffer. The link is in the show notes. Electric vehicles are a part of every developed nation's net zero strategy and they should be an easy sell. They're packed with gadgets, they're often subsidized. They're pretty fun to drive. There is one downside, they need charging. For lots of people, that gives rise to range anxiety, that nagging fear of running out of juice en route.
3: In some senses, it's an anxiety that is sometimes misplaced. People drive roughly 30 miles a day in the US and the uh, typical electric car has a range of 250 miles. Simon
0: Wright is The Economist's industry editor.
3: Most people actually charge at home at the moment because electric cars are a little bit more expensive. They tend to be bought by people who have off-street parking. But that's going to change, and the charging infrastructure in public is much more patchy. When motorists do find a place to plug in, sometimes an internal combustion engine car is blocking the space. Sometimes the charging points are damaged or inaccessible. And you don't want to get stuck on the road with a flat battery. You can't just fill up a can full of petrol like you can at the moment.
0: So is the simple solution simply to expand the number of chargers that are out there?
3: Well, that'll certainly have to happen to get to net zero. That's one of the reasons that the governments are pushing electric vehicles. And to do that, we might need 200 million public chargers worldwide by 2050. At the moment, we've got 1.3 million. But it's a much more complicated picture than that because it's the charges you need and where you need them. Around cities and at home, for example, you don't really need super fast chargers. You need chargers that will give 10 to 20 miles of range an hour. Some public chargers, that'll be fine as well. You know, quite a few lampposts have been converted in London and other cities to charging. And if you're going to leave your car there overnight, that's also going to be fine. But look, if you want to go long distances or even if you need a quick fix in the city, you need a fast charger and these are much more expensive to install and run.
0: But isn't there a sort of business opportunity for chargers just as there now seems to be with the cars themselves?
3: Well, absolutely, and companies are piling in. They're dedicated charging firms. There's the uh, car makers themselves. Tesla set the pace here with its supercharger network. Other car makers are moving into the sector. Oil companies with Shell to the fore are also setting up charging networks And indeed utilities who have electricity to sell. So there are plenty of people out there. But it's quite a complicated business because you have quite a few parties involved. You have the people who make the charging equipment. The companies that operate it, they may lease it to site owners. The site owners may decide to take the risk of uh, running the business and getting the income from the charging or they may just lease it to these operators who do that. Again, also, it's a question of where these chargers are. The charging companies are having to build out ahead of takeoff of electric cars because uh, electric car drivers are going to need the reassurance that they will get this charging network, and that means profits are a long way off. So it's quite a difficult business to coordinate.
0: I mean, it sounds a bit like a, a chicken and egg problem. People want there to be chargers, but there can't be chargers until they're of the people.
3: It's exactly that, and it was a thing that Tesla faced There was simply no recharging network to speak of when they pioneered the mass production of electric cars. And of course, part of the problem is that charging companies want to install their chargers at popular spots where they're going to make money. California has a lot of electric cars, but it also has a lot of chargers. But in rural areas where there may not be many, there's not much incentive to install uh, big charging networks.
0: But on these kind of grand infrastructure kinds of questions, the answer often is for governments to step in, to take that risk and take that early hit.
3: Well, governments actually already are stepping in. Not only do they subsidise the sale of electric cars, but they've been subsidising the rollout of public infrastructure for some time. They realise that this is going to be a problem, and they're stepping up their efforts. If you look at America's infrastructure law, it set aside $7.5 billion to create half a million public stations by 2030. And other governments are sort of doing the same kind of thing, but perhaps not at quite that scale.
0: But what is it that will get us to where you think we're eventually going to need to be?
3: One of the ideas is that governments should learn from uh, the telecoms industry. Most countries auctioned or issued licenses or spectrum rights for firms to run regional and national mobile networks. And in return, the firms have to build networks according to schedule, offer universal coverage and compete with each other. And this looks like a model that might work for charging. Regulators set rules to allow roaming between them and all kinds of things just to make it very, very simple to recharge electric cars in public. A couple of decades ago, it wasn't entirely obvious that we would have widespread mobile phone networks covering the whole planet, allowing us to carry something in our pocket that means we can contact anyone all over the world. And with well-thought-out regulations, the same could be true of electric vehicle charging networks.
0: Thanks very much for your time, Simon.
3: Thank you, Jason.
4: Ever since the dawn of civilization, human beings have longed to be birds.
0: Anne Rowe is a senior editor at The Economist.
4: One of the oldest instruments ever found, a Neolithic flute, was made from the wing bone of a bird. Some have tried to imitate them in the craziest ways, like coating themselves with tar and feathers and jumping off church towers. Others have simply tried to sing like birds, the most famous being Papageno, the bird catcher, in Mozart's The Magic Flute.
3: Der bin mich, ja, die
4: they feel that if only they could be like a bird, they could lose the heaviness of existence somehow. It seems an ideal state to wish for. In May 2006, the most famous birdman of modern times, Angelo Darigo, fell to his death in Sicily. He was only 44 and he fell in a light aircraft, which for him was an extremely heavy vehicle. Normally, he simply flew free. What he would do was get a tow with a friend and a little motor up to an altitude where he could glide. And then he would simply glide away a free flight with no motor at all, absolutely like a bird. He practiced doing this at higher and higher altitudes. And in the end, he flew over Everest and he flew over Aconcagua in the Andes, where he was simply alone among the peaks and drifting. decided he would try to bring up two condors from the egg by him talking to them in the shell and then as soon as they fledged he would take them outside and he would wrap himself in his hang glider and looked like a bird so there was this creature hopping along beside the chicks who was actually a man but looked like a condor and when he had fed them he'd also put a puppet glove on his hand so that it looked like a condor's beak And so he had turned himself into a bird to raise these chicks. And then he had to show them how to fly, because they had no natural parent to show them. So he would take them up Mount Etna, which was where he lived, and he'd practice crouching, and running and jumping while the birds watched him. He kept on doing it with his gliding suit on so that they could get the general idea. The chicks learned what to do and took off, and then he could fly beside them. Flying like a bird is perhaps the most obvious way in which humans want to imitate them. But there's also the great attraction of trying to sing like one.
2: I'm Sam Lee. I'm a folk singer. I'm a nature conservationist, writer and singer with nightingales. The Scene with Nightingale Concerts are very regular. They happen almost every night. I go into this pattern of living in the woods for at least five nights a week, welcoming guests in every night. And because of that, I'm living with the patterns of nature, that arrival of spring. Every day I'll be waking up in the morning to the extraordinary quality of the dawn chorus, that bursting sound that happens at about 4.30 a.m. I thought she was... Nightingale is possibly one of the greatest yet most unknown singers in the whole world, known by name. But the song itself, only sung by the males, has an incredible quality. Unlike any other bird song, I call it the great decorator of silence. I'm tripping down
3: so long.
2: The birds have this on-off pattern where they'll rotate between over a thousand different sounds and improvised phrases, they never repeated into a moment of utter silence where the bird is listening out for responses from other males and other sounds. It's a very liquid, mellifluous, quixotic, eccentric, electronic, quite unusual sound. It's not the sweet temptation of the blackbird or the robin. It's much more agile and dexterous. It can be quite a shock to listeners, actually. Very quickly will pull you under his spell and you'll fall into this amazing pattern and rhythm that the birds sing in that can really take you away for many hours into the night just listening.
4: Some people at least have learned to fly with the birds and sing with them. What J.A. Baker did was to learn to see like a bird. And this was extraordinary because he was a very ordinary chap. He was short-sighted, but he longed to see as well as a hawk could. He began to follow a particular peregrine and wrote a book about it because it took up all his life. He would go out to the parts of the marshes, where the peregrine was, and he would simply follow the bird wherever it went, watch it as long as he could. And after a while, he began to find his eyesight was improving. He would see the landscape, for example, flowing out in deltas of color. He would find his peripheral vision really sharpened. And he would often get the sense that he was observing things from a height, almost from the peregrine's angle and from the peregrine's altitude. He was completely absorbed in the way it flew and the way it acted. As he followed the way of the peregrine, he hoped he would learn how it hunted and share in its skill. But at the end of all this sharp seeing, for the bird had much improved the way he could see. He always had to turn back for the bus stop and get back to where his wife Doreen was making the tea. What a change from one world to another, from the world of the birds to the world of the restricted and grounded human being.
0: all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Giddleston and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, Sam Colbert, Sam Western, and Jack Gill. Our producers are William Warren, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Rory Galloway, and assistant producer Abisoye Oshendiro, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias, Pete Naughton, and John-Joe Devlin. We'll all see you back here on Monday.